Amen. Well, good morning. Oh, you look wonderful. Open your Bibles with me, beloved, to the Gospel of Mark. What a wonderful time lifting our voices to heaven. Scripture exhorts us to put on a garment of praise for a spirit of heaviness. You know, God knows each and every burden that has come through the door this morning. And he makes a promise that as we encounter the word of God, we will encounter the God of the word. And he has told us who he is. We can know his attributes and his characteristics, not only by what he does, but by the very names he bestows on himself. Most are aware of the, the many names for God and scripture. What many may not know is that most of the names are rare. Names like Yahweh Jireh, or you might also hear Jehovah Jireh, meaning the Lord will provide. We see that only one time in scripture. Yahweh Nisi, meaning the Lord, our banner, one time. Yahweh Shalom, meaning the Lord is peace, again, only one time in all of scripture. Yahweh Rapha, the Lord who heals, you guessed it, one time. Even his name El Olam, meaning the everlasting God, only four times. Even the beautiful name El Shaddai, only seven times in all of Scripture. There are others as well that are rarely used. But what do we see above all else? Those who use the LSB translation will appreciate this. What name does God assign himself the most in all of Scripture? It is the name Yahweh Elohim, 6,519 times. Yahweh Elohim, meaning all-powerful, all-sufficient, the never-changing and holy God. Yes, he is peace. Yes, he is provider. Yes, he is the banner over us. Yes, he is the God who heals us. Yes, he is the everlasting God in all of perfection. But what does God desire to put a bullhorn on? Yahweh Elohim. First, that he is all-powerful, omnipotent. Nothing can stand against the will and the purpose of God. That he orchestrates the entire cosmos according to that perfect will. And secondly, that he is all-sufficient in our life. Everything could be taken, like Job. But if you possessed him, if you possess Christ, you possess all. He meets every need, just like his word. Yahweh Elohim is all-sufficient. And third, he is never changing. He's constant. Let life shift and move. Let the world melt down around you. We stand on the unshakable rock who literally put his name on his promises. Yahweh Elohim. The all-powerful. The all-sufficient. The never-changing. And finally, the holy God. Beloved, the angels don't surround his throne singing peace, 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 or love, love, love. They cry, holy, holy, holy. And so he is. God has told us in his word 6,519 times who he is. 
Let us take him at his word and apply that word to the burdens that you may have brought in this morning. His power, sufficiency, constancy, and holiness, all in perfection, that we might take shelter underneath them. Or perhaps you need to stand boldly on them. Or perhaps recling tightly to them anew. We are blessed this morning, beloved, with all our cares of the week that we can encounter the word of God and so encounter the God of the word. Amen? Amen. Well, last week we finally completed at long last our journey through last things, through the Olivet Discourse. And I pray it not only encouraged you for the victory that has come and is to come in Christ, but I pray that it has whet your appetite to study these wonderful depths further. Don't cast it off as so many do. When our Lord tells us to listen, read, and understand, let us do that with great joy and enthusiasm. Because these are glorious truths that are meant to be grasped, to encourage us on our journey, to inflame our passion for the lost, to remind us of the high cost of sin and the surety of justice and the sovereignty of God, that all is according to plan, that God will keep his promises to his children Jew and Gentile alike, that we are to stay awake, vigilant, living as children of the day, looking forward to his coming, both the gathering of his church for us today and the tribulation saints of that day. Let us both stay awake. Well, today is something, well, it's something of a special day, much like the beginning, much like beginning the last leg of a long journey. And so we begin the final narrative of Mark. As the passion narrative takes hold, we are going to see the bowels of betrayal and sedition uncovered, fear and desperation taking hold in disciples and friends and loved ones, still, of course, laced with beautiful moments like Jesus anointing with Mary. We'll see the darkest of days when evil will appear to have the upper hand. When Satan's pride would believe that the divine had been slain and that the plans of God Almighty had been thwarted. And while the cross, the hill of Calvary, has always been in view since the fall of man, it is here in our final chapters that the image is no longer hazy. It's no longer a flickering light and a, a shadow cast upon the walls allowing us to see dimly as in the days of the prophets, the instrument of death that our redemption would be purchased upon will come into horrific clarity as the cross comes into view. In all of our, I, I believe, around 110 messages so far in Mark now have been steps toward this final destination. For nearly three years now, you have looked at this banner to my right. And its words may have grown common to us. The very theme of Mark is the suffering servant. Suffering and triumph are the two dominant themes of this incredible gospel. But rather than give us a, a specific chronology of Jesus' life and ministry, Mark highlights our suffering Savior. And in fact, out of the 661 verses that make up this gospel, 242 of them deal 
with this final week. From Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, atop a donkey, the triumphal entry, all the way to an empty tomb. And of that, over half of that speak to the suffering of Christ and to the triumph of this suffering servant. So though Mark has three chapters yet to go, this is the final leg down the mountain as such, encapsulating the very central theme in all of Scripture. And while we watch with great anticipation the telling of Jesus' second coming, it is now that we begin to look at the sacred culmination of his first coming, what some theologians describe as the holy of holies of Scripture. He who was born in Bethlehem, who grew in favor with God and man, who amazed the religious teachers even as a boy, who called 12 men unto himself, who turned the religious and political world upside down in only three years, claiming to be God, claiming to be the long-awaited Messiah, all headquartered from a, a village in the north named Capernaum. In Galilee, a light has shone, but the world will hate the light, that is, as it always has. They will despise the very one they claim to be looking for and claim to be worshiping. From the very highest of plotting religious leaders to the crowd that would chant, crucify him, the world hates the light. Because it exposes them. It exposes their motives and their wickedness that flows out of the hearts of men. Yet as we will say many more times between now and Jesus' ascension, God allows that which he hates to accomplish that which he loves. Through the greatest evil, God has accomplished the greatest good. And today in our text, wicked men will plot. They will devise evil. They will plot to kill the very Son of God. And yet we are given the beauty of hindsight this morning, are we not? The incredible privilege of seeing the hand of God the Father using that which is plotted in the dark to bring light to a broken world. So it's going to be an exciting final journey in Mark. With that, let us turn to our text this morning, beloved. Very exciting. Mark 14, 1 through 2. Mark 14, 1 through 2. Now the Passover and unleavened bread were two days away. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how, after seizing him in secret, they might kill him. For they were saying, not during the festival, lest there be a riot of the people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is with trembling hands and trembling hearts, Lord, that we do enter into this holy of holies of Scripture. Lord, this final chapter, Lord, that was foreseen from Genesis, coming in perfection. Lord, we ask that you would help us to see as we should see. Lord, give us ears to hear. Give us a heart to receive, Lord. We are desperate for it. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for preserving this word and this text for us. Allow us to see it with beauty and clarity this morning. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Well, some of you shared that one of the most encouraging aspects in the Olivet Discourse was being able to piece together from prophecy the exact timing of certain events. I know some folks' heads were spinning as we looked to Daniel in the 70 weeks. You'll recall that it required a good deal of math, didn't it? You'll also recall that one of our stops along that route to getting to our final timeline in eschatology came in Daniel 9, beginning at verse 25. By way of reminder, it reads this, So you are to know and discern that from the issue of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks, and it will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off. And of course, the encouragement of that, we know exactly when the decree went forth for Jerusalem to be restored and rebuilt. We also know when Messiah was cut off. Now, had the religious leaders had eyes to see, they too would have known when Messiah not only would have come, but they would have known that Messiah would be killed. It's all over the Psalms as well. Psalm 22 depicts Messiah's crucifixion before crucifixion was even known, before it was even a method of execution. We see it depicted in Zechariah 12. And of course, in Isaiah's suffering servant in Isaiah 53, numerous other places. And those with eyes to see and ears to hear, they did know. Who was the last Old Testament prophet? It was John the Baptist. One whom Jesus said was the greatest man to ever live. But listen. What did John the Baptist declare when he saw Jesus there at the Jordan River? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now we all know that verse. We all hear it. But are we listening? There's two elements in John's statement there. There's a Lamb and there's an atonement. A dealing with sin. What is the only thing you do with a lamb for atonement? You kill it. You kill it. What would every person standing there on the riverbank understand John to be saying? There's the Messiah, and they're going to kill him. Right from the beginning. That's what you do with the lamb. That's what you do at Passover. But instead of just covering those sins, as in the temple sacrifice, this lamb takes it away. The last greatest prophet, John the Baptist, the first words out of his mouth in the ears of Jesus, there's the Messiah, and they're going to kill him. He's the lamb. That's what we do with lambs. As we look back to Daniel, apply the math. We know exactly when the lamb would be slain, when Messiah would be cut off, and specifically the 14th day of Nisan, the day of Passover. That year, that Passover, that day, that time. 
even as the lambs were being slaughtered in the temple for Passover. But let us look closer at this, beloved. Opening with our first verse, verse 1, verse 1. Now the Passover and unleavened bread were two days away. Now let's pause there. A few things to understand in the way of, well, historical background. So we not only can, can grasp the scene, but that we, almost, that we also might behold the perfect plan of God being carried out. So we see two feasts spoken of here. First is Passover. Most know what this is, right? This comes from the event in Exodus where the angel of death passed over the homes of the Israelites in Egypt who had put the blood of the lamb on the doorposts. It's still celebrated today, as a matter of fact. And this always occurred on the 14th day of Nisan, perfectly prophesied from Daniel down to the day. And here also we see the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And this, this feast celebrates the actual exodus of the Israelites from Egypt. And it's, it's named after that, that flat bread, that unleavened bread that they made to sustain them as they fled Egypt. And that would be on the 15th to the 21st of Nisan. So these two feasts, they ran consecutively, making up one week, one, de- one day, and one week, right? And so because they, they ran so close to each other, they, even though they were separate feasts, they really became synonymous with one another. So when you hear the term Passover or you hear the Feast of Unleavened Bread, they're, they're really talking about kind of the same thing at the same time. One day, 14th Nisan, seven days, 15th through 21st of Nisan, eight days in total. So that's our time frame. That's our calendar. And we camp on that because this calendar is nothing short of divinely inspired. It's nothing short of being orchestrated in heaven. From the moment in the Garden of Eden when the animal was sacrificed to clothe and cover Adam and Eve after their sin, from that moment, the 14th of Nisan was in view. Traced throughout the Old Testament... When the Israelites would disobey and be brought into slavery in Egypt only to be passed over by the angel of death, the 14th of Nisan was in view. This Passover, this day, and as we will cover more later, even down to the hour of crucifixion, 9 a.m. to the time of his death, 3 p.m., both divine. Understand that there is some debate whether or not the Passover lamb was also sacrificed at the same time Jesus died, or if, or if the lamb was offered up the day before on Thursday, the night of the Last Supper, the eating of the Passover. And there is some debate on semantics of, of timing all the way back to when the triumphal entry occurred. Was it Sunday or was it Monday? I would be on the Monday camp on that, full disclosure. Either way, it does not matter as it relates to the sacrificing of the Passover lamb along with the sacrifice of the Lamb of God. Because either it was concurrent with the sacrifice of the Passover lambs at the temple, or it was concurrent with what was known as the continual burnt offering. And this happened twice a day. And guess when? According to the writings of Josephus, it was at 9 a.m. and 3 p.m. 9 a.m. was known as the Tamid. 3 p.m. was known as the evening sacrifice. And it was during these times that an unblemished male lamb was sacrificed and bread and wine were taken. It would have been during the Tamid that Jesus was crucified, 9 a.m. 
and the evening sacrifice when he died, 3 p.m. But understand, it is not merely the act of sacrifice that was occurring at this time. Very specific prayer was occurring at these very times as well. And they're known in the Jewish traditions as the 18 benedictions. And we see this time of prayer represented in Acts 2.13 and Acts 3.1. Now Peter and John went up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. Now the ninth hour means nine hours after the sun rose, around 6 a.m. That makes that what? 3 p.m. It was the evening sacrifice prayers, the 18 benedictions that were occurring when Peter and John went up to the temple that day. So what were those prayers? What was the nation of Israel praying for? Both at 9 a.m. at the Tamid and 3 p.m. the evening sacrifice, along with sacrificing the unblemished male. Shall we hear the exact words of the prayers being offered, both while Jesus was being nailed to a cross at 9 and as he died at 3, same time? At this very moment, they were praying, one, for the forgiveness of sins. Forgive us, O our Father, for we have sinned. Pardon us, O our King, for we have transgressed. For you pardon and forgive. Blessed are you, O Lord, who is merciful and always ready to forgive. Then they would pray for redemption. Look upon our affliction and plead our cause. And redeem us speedily for your name's sake. For you are a mighty redeemer. Blessed are you, O Lord, the redeemer of Israel. Then they would pray for the coming of Messiah. Speedily cause the offspring of your servant David to flourish and let him be exalted by your saving power. For we wait all day long for your salvation. Blessed are you, O Lord, who causes salvation to flourish. They would have then prayed for the resurrection of the dead. You, O Lord, are mighty forever. You revive the dead. You have the power to save. You sustain the living with loving kindness. You revive the dead with great mercy. You support the falling. Heal the sick. Set free the bound. And keep faith with those who sleep in the dust. Who resembles you? O king who puts to death and restores to life and causes salvation to flourish. And you are certain to revive the dead. Blessed are you, O Lord, who revives the dead. Meanwhile, on Calvary, an unblemished male lamb was answering the prayers of his people, both at 9 a.m. and at 3 p.m. Back to our text, these feasts were two days away that means that we're still at this point in Wednesday. Now, some of us have to smile because, well, that means that we've probably been in Wednesday of Passion Week for around seven to eight months now. And I believe it's the longest day in history. But a lot happened on Wednesday, didn't it? Which is ironic because some commentators who use slightly different timelines, they claim that Scripture is silent about Wednesday of Passion Week. That it was a quiet day of preparation for Jesus. Well, with respect to those scholars, not hardly. We remain in Wednesday, deep into Wednesday evening at this point. 
So let's look at our players that are entering into this Passover plot. Back to our text. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how, after seizing him in secret, they might kill him. So much to see here. So we have both chief priests and scribes. Now understand, the chief priests were almost always Sadducees. Remember these guys? They were your aristocratic class. They were connected with everything going on in the temple in Jerusalem. They were the wealthy. They were the powerful. They were the connected. Of course, the deep irony here is even though they held titles like chief priest, and that they basically made up the majority of the Sanhedrin, they really weren't religious at all, per se. They were a political bloc. They were far more concerned with Rome than they were with righteousness. They cared far more about politics than they did about piety. And because of this, they were inherently secular. They didn't believe in angels or demons. They didn't believe in an afterlife. They didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. They didn't believe God was involved in his creation. It was almost a a Jewish form of deism. Imagine your chief priest holding those views. But they were there because of their wealth and power. But everything they were was connected to the temple. Right, The operation of the temple. Thus, when the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, that was bye-bye Sadducees. We never hear another mention of them again. But understand that the only reason we see them involved here with this Passover plot has nothing to do with religious differences and everything to do with Rome. Everything to do with Rome. But they're not alone plotting in this wickedness. Who else is in our text? We see the scribes. Now, your scribes were majority Pharisees. These were your religious experts. These were the authorities on rabbinic and mosaic law. And you'll recall from previous messages that these two groups, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they didn't care for one another in the least. They were constantly at odds for one another. But don't we know the axiom? And it holds true. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. And their hatred for Jesus far exceeded their hatred for each other. When Jesus ransacked the bazaars of Annas, clearing the temple, he cost the Sadducees a lot of money, and he cost them a lot of face. That was the very moment in time that the establishment leadership wanted him gone. Of course, the Pharisees were already desiring this. They were already of a mind for murder. Jesus had been calling them out since the beginning. He condemned everything they stood for. Whitewashed tombs, brood of vipers, hypocrites. You're tripping over scripture, running after tradition. So what is the plot? These two groups were seeking how, after seizing him in secret, they might kill him. Well, I'm sure they would be very sad to know they are not original. And they're quite late to the party, actually. Wicked men, given speed by demonic forces, have been trying to kill Jesus from infancy. The very announcement of the coming of Christ, of the Christ child in the heavenlies, pursued by men from the east. Just the announcement incited murder in the hearts of men. Herod would kill all the male children, two and under, trying to make an end to this coming king. But the sacrifice of the lamb is not on man's timetable. Now when they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, 
for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. But it's not time yet. All through Jesus' three years of earthly ministry, they have sought to bring an end to him. When Jesus healed the man with the withered hand in Mark 3, the Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. Conspire how you will. It's not time yet. Jesus in his hometown of Nazareth, Luke 4, and all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. And they got up and drove him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill of which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. If a crowd wants to kill you, there's not much you can do about it. Yet what does the next verse say? But passing through their midst, he went his way. You cannot touch Jesus until it's time. It's the Father's timetable. And John shows us this murderous desire from the beginning as well. John 5, 18. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because he was only, not only breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. March on through John, chapter 7, verse 1. After these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. It's well known. Further down there in verse 25, so some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, is this not the man whom they are seeking to kill? And this wasn't just harbored in their hearts. They tried to act on it, did they not? John 7, verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about them. And the chief priests and the Pharisees, oh, there they are again, sent officers to arrest him. Reminds me of the old saying, yeah, you and what army? It matters not. No man will thwart God's timetable. The Passover lamb will be slain on this Passover, on this day, at this time, all the way from Genesis. Well, what happened to those officers sent to arrest Jesus? Do you remember? Verse 32, verse 45 and on, we read, the officers then came back. To the chief priests and Pharisees. And they said to him. Why did you not bring him? The officers answered. Never has a man spoken. The way this man speaks. Still more. John 10.31. The Jews picked up stones. Again to stone him. Verse 39. Again they sought to arrest him. But he escaped from their hands. They have plotted from the beginning. And they are accountable. But God is sovereign. Jesus' life was not taken from him. In accordance with the perfect plan of the Father, he laid it down. For this reason the Father loves me, Jesus declared. Because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it from me. But I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. So understand, beloved, when we see the plotting in our text, understand that that is not the story. That's the subtext. That's the footnote. That's an asterisk. The true narrative, the controlling narrative is this. Luke twenty-two twenty-two. For indeed, 
The Son of Man is going as it has been determined. That the precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ, Peter declares, for he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. You know, Peter couldn't get through a single sermon in Acts without declaring this overarching truth. Beginning in Pentecost, Peter again declares, This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. His very next sermon, Acts 3, But the things which God announced beforehand, By the mouth of all the prophets, that is, Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Saints, if we fail to see the overarching, the complete, the total, uncontested command and control of God the Father, as these small, wicked men plot, we fail to understand the entire narrative of the truth of the scene before us. Yes, men are responsible But God is sovereign. Both truths are demonstrated a thousand times over in Scripture. We read Luke 22, 22, did we not? But only the first part. Listen again for the second. For indeed the Son of Man is going as it has been determined. There's God's sovereignty. But woe to the man by whom he is betrayed. There's man's responsibility. We have a thousand examples of this in God's word. Well, back to our text. Look again to the last part of verse 1. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how, after seizing him in secret, they might kill him. They are openly plotting a crime. (laughs) They're plotting to kill a man. The religious leadership of Israel. Why secret? Some translations say, say by stealth. It's the literal meaning of of a fish hook or a trap. Why in the dark? Why by stealth? The truth is never afraid of the light. It wants to be seen. It wants to be known. Do you ever notice how the truth is always hunting to come to the light no matter how many years have passed? You ever notice that? God is truth. His word is truth. God is light. In him there is no darkness. They seek to be together. Truth and light. Sin likes the dark, the secret. They're plotting sin. They're plotting murder. And we actually know the dialogue of this conversation and probably earlier ones like it. John records it for us in John 11. John 11. Therefore the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, what are we doing? (laughs) For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. We know who's saying that. That's the Sadducees. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, political, said to them, you know nothing at all. Nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. Why was that prophetic? John goes on. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. But they have a problem. They have a big problem. It's Passover. It's Passover. And Jerusalem is 
busting at the seams. Some population counts put it up to two and a half million for this time. Emotions run hot and heavy. The people like Jesus. He's popular. Say what they will, but he commands attention and respect. And if he supposedly commands the people, the Sadducees care because Rome will care. And the Pharisees care because Jesus is stealing their flock. He's stealing their sheep. And the root sins of these two groups, are they not tales as old as time? First, pride, always pride. Jesus has damaged their egos time and again. How about love of money? Jesus threatens their cash cow in the temple. And if Rome gets involved, they're going to lose their positions of wealth and power. And ultimately, their scheming of the timing of Jesus' capture, when and how they would carry out this evil, is rooted in what? Fear of man. Fear of man. What will the crowds do? Will they revolt? Yet Proverbs 29, 25 tells us that the fear of man does what? It brings a snare. It brings a snare. But he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted was doing what was right before the Lord, driving these men at all. God's word was not even in their calculus. We hear their conversation. We know what they said. They're operating from a place of pride, a place of lust for wealth and power, from a place of fear. Beloved, that's the blinding force of sin. You, the very religious leaders of Israel are plotting to kill the Lord of glory, the very Messiah that you're praying will come. Sin has a blinding and a deluding effect. How many of these men, they were formerly young men, perhaps zealous for the things of God when they launched out to be a scribe, to sit under Rabbi Gamaliel or whatever school they went to, to be an expert in God's law. Do you ever thought they'd be a party to conspiracy, to commit murder? Behold the momentum of sin. It never stays still. It never stays still. So their motives are laid bare in our text. Verse 2 now. Verse 2, beloved. For they were saying, not during the festival, lest there be a riot of the people. Now we really must look to the rich irony here. Grasp this. We have looked time after time where they sought to kill him and couldn't. Now they have the one time that they don't want to kill him, and that is exactly when they're going to have to do it. In fact, the very day of the very time, the very worst time, the time when the lambs were being sacrificed for Passover, that's the most sacredest of times. It's right then at that moment that you're going to crucify an innocent man. That you're going to slay the darling of heaven. (laughs) Out of all the times you have sought to arrest and kill Jesus, you've been stopped. And now there is one time where you don't want to do it. And that's exactly when you will do it. This is God's program. This is God's program. You could not lay a finger on Jesus unless it was God's will. And beloved, how rich a truth is that for us this morning? What does the truth of God's ultimate sovereignty over the timeline of Jesus' execution mean for every believer in here this morning? 
Of course, it's pregnant with all manner of glorious truth and application from the allowance of evil to bring forth good, showing the devils on a leash, the list goes on. But it carries with it a truth for the believer that will change a person's walk if they will grab hold of it. And I share this often because it is an an axiomatic truth that can set the trajectory of faith and boldness in a believer's life. And it is this. If you are in Christ this morning, you are immortal until God is finished with you. Men down through the ages have encouraged us with this truth. George Whitfield declared again, we are immortal until our work is done. David Jeremiah, wonderful man, affirmed this truth writing, a man of God in the will of God is immortal until his work is done. If God's will be that you live and he has work yet for you to do, no power on earth, no force in hell can kill you. If God has called you home, no physician can save you. If we grab hold of this this morning, what capacity might that have to change your life? What elixir might that be for the sin of worry that loves to settle in our hearts? It was this very truth that kept the death of Jesus on a divine timetable. Just as the death of all his children are on a divine timetable. No one could touch him. They were thwarted and stopped at every turn. Though they desired greatly to be done with this man. God knows what man will do. God knew what men would plot in the night. This very scheming is prophesied in the Psalter, is it not? Listen to the psalmist, Psalm 41, 5 through 8. My enemies speak evil against me. When will he die and his name perish? Isn't that what they said? And when he comes to see me, he speaks falsehood. His heart gathers wickedness to itself. When he goes outside, he tells it. All who hate whisper together against me. Against me, they devise my hurt. Saying a wicked thing is poured out upon him. That when he lies down, he will not rise up again. (laughs) Jesus has drawn this response down through the ages. In the heart of every man, confronted with this troublemaker from Galilee. Beloved, unless God intervene, every one of us walks the path of the Pharisee and of the Sadducee. What do we do? With this Jesus, we might first ignore him, hoping that makes man, this man go away, but he won't be ignored. Well, if you cannot ignore him, perhaps minimize him, perhaps argue with him, sit in judgment over him, mock him, laugh at him. But your anger is only going to grow. You know why? Because no man ever spoke like this man. And there lies your divine fork in the road. This man, he claimed to be God. Now we either kill him or we bow at his feet as Lord. Understand that that cycle has been repeated in every heart since a Passover plot 2,000 years ago. The road is before each of us. We either crucify him afresh and anew 
we plot in our heart how to silence this voice from heaven, or we fall at his feet as Savior and Lord. The call has not changed. There is no middle road. Are you plotting or are you bowing? The divine call from heaven to repent and believe is the greatest mercy you've ever received in your life. There's no greater gift to be offered. He stands ready to receive that humble heart today. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we know that in accordance with your will, wicked men plotted your demise. Lord, we know that each one of us in our hearts has plotted the same. Lord, we have ignored you. Lord, we have argued with you. We have sat in judgment over your word. Lord, every one of us has sat in the seat of the Sadducee and sat in the seat of the Pharisee. But Lord, today, we wish to bow the knee. Lord, we know that your word says that every knee will bow on that day. It is not a question. You are Lord. But Lord, it is our fervent desire that every knee with us this morning would bow on this side of eternity. Lord, that they would know their desire for you, that they would cease their plotting and start their bowing. Heavenly Father, you are good. Your timetable for us is perfect. For each one of our lives is perfect. Not a sparrow has fallen to the ground that you don't know about. We rest in that this morning. We ask that you would keep us until we can meet again in Jesus' mighty name.